to Programming Love Podcast, Episode 4. I'm your host, Oli. This is the high-fidelity podcast where we meet passionate people and discuss programming. On this podcast, you'll hear stories from individuals from around the world on their journey and the joys and pains they experience along the way, so we can all learn and move forward together. This week, I'm coming to you from Seattle. And before we get started, I would like to promote one event. Free one-day conference, Women in Tech, with Cornelia Davis, Marcia Velabra, Jamie Rhinosel, and many more. It's online and free on October 13. Links to the event will be provided in the show notes. Okay, back to the episode. The term spring means different things in different contexts. Of course, it's a season, but what's more interesting for us developers, it can be used to refer to the spring framework project. Over time, other spring projects have been built on top of the spring framework. Most often, when people say spring, they mean the entire family of projects. So what spring can do? Microservices, reactive, cloud, web apps, serverless, event-driven, batch, and today I have Josh Long, developer advocate for Spring in my virtual studio. Hello. Hi. Good afternoon. So I just said that the Spring ecosystem gives developers so many tools that it's hard to know where to begin. But I would like to give a little introduction from you to the listeners, who you are and what you're doing. Yeah. So I work on the Spring team. I am a developer advocate, as you just well explained. I've been... Spring's number one fan officially for 10 years, and uh, I was unofficially its number one fan for almost 10 years before that. So I've just been very lucky. I just get to be in the community and talk about Spring, something I love to do, and, and it's been a privilege. How did you get involved in Spring? Before I answer that, can I just say, mm-hmm. you, you just mentioned all those amazing speakers at the Women in Tech event. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Cornelia Davis is one of my all-time favorite human beings. She's a legendary technologist. She was actually the very first guest I had in my podcast. For real? Yeah, <laughs> for real. I, she's She was like my high watermark. I look at her and I go, I want to be like her when I grow up. When I turn into a good, strong, talented engineer and leader, I want to be like her, right? If that ever happens for me, I don't think it will. But she's so amazing. So if you, all those other people I, I know are great. Okay, but for me, my personal favorite, and I would encourage anybody to just to go and just to talk to her. She worked at the office of the CTO at EMC, mm-hmm. huge multinational corporation, right? She worked in the office of the CTO for years. She then jumped down from that amazing position to take a risk and join the Cloud Foundry team at VMware back eight years ago, whatever. And I was working at VMware at the time, so we interacted then. And then she joined, she, along with me and others, we, we created Pivotal, right? Oh, yeah. And so, oh, she's one of my all-time heroes. You know, just amazing. She had been programming for a long time before I even started. She's just so amazing. So lots of great people at that event. But uh, if all of them are as cool as she is, when I was uh, at, we were, I don't know what we were at, we were at some sort of a function, maybe it was a party or something, because she and I used to work at Mm-hmm. at Pivotal together, right? For years and years. And now she's off to New Horizons, right? But I first met her because uh, I knew what, all the things she had done. And as an engineer, I look up to other engineers, right? I'm a big fan of awesome engineers, right? So 
when I first met her at a party, I'm like, oh, it's you. And we, we took a selfie because I wanted to get a selfie with one of my heroes, you know. So maybe others will want to take virtual selfies with her. It's a shame you can't do that in real life right now Yeah. because of the pandemic. Unfortunately, they don't have title. It's to be confirmed. So we don't know what she's going to talk about. But I'm pretty sure it's going to be awesome whatever she wants we works and something awesome cloudy yeah she's just whatever yeah, it is cloudy. and if you have yeah if you have questions and also data she's she's got a huge repertoire of like skills and, and the background with data and messaging i mean just legendary legendary engineer <laughs> thank you i could not more encourage that conference it's gonna be awesome so i started with spring gosh in the very beginning of the 2000s i was just starting my career and i didn't understand how to build applications using J2EE, which is the technology that was now, it, it, today it's called Jakarta EE, but back then it was called J2EE. And of course it's very different, right? The, the technology back then was very different from today. Today it's much easier to use Jakarta EE, but 18 years ago, I didn't understand it. I felt like I couldn't do something productive with it. It made me feel very stupid. And I was definitely stupid, but it was nice to just find something open source that I could use that didn't require vendors. <laughs> I didn't have to pay anybody to use it. There's no golf games involved to decide technical strategy. And it was open source, which is nice too, because back then that was not a guarantee, right? Back then it was very hard to find open source middleware for enterprise grade Java services. Especially high quality middleware. Yeah. Well, I mean, do you remember there was this huge fight about whether JBoss could get certified? Yeah. As a J2EE implementation, right? That was a huge thing, right? Back then was uh, people were running JBoss and it was always like, oh, well, if you went to the big banks, they'd say, oh, we can't use JBoss. That's not certified. It, was like, well, it does everything that everything else does, you know, it's, it's, well, almost, you know, basically. And so anyway, that was a different time. And then back then, you know, in order to keep JBoss commercially viable, they charge for the documentation, you know, things like that. You just think about like, can you imagine charging for the documentation today? That would be such a weird <laughs> strategy, but it, we were all just trying to figure it out, right? How do we make open source enterprise grade middleware work, right? There's all, all sorts of different strategies. None of them are worse or better. But today you look back and go, oh, that's funny. You know, I can't believe we did that. I didn't work at JBoss. I was just a, an admirer of the movement, right? They were trying to make this open source stuff. And so Spring was doing the same thing, right? Spring went a different route. Instead of trying to pursue the J2EE stuff, they went a different route. And so at the time I felt like, gosh, I can't really get something working quickly, right? At the time, they had, when you, when you studied J2EE, they talked about the seven deployer roles. So in order to build an application, there were different roles that were involved in taking this application from concept all the way to customer, right? And I just, seven different things, you know, seven different human beings involved in the process. Whereas with Spring, like Ruby on Rails a little bit later, right? I could just get something up, by, you know, working by myself, mm-hmm. which I which I love. So I got started with that because I was at a startup. I was working at a lot of different startups. And at startups, they don't care what vendor you're using. They don't care what your golf game looks like. None of that matters. They just want you to get to production. You have to get to production or people could lose their jobs, right? Simple, just very, very simple. So you could either sit there and spend hours writing seven different classes for an EJB, or you could just write a Spring Bean and get it up and running handling transactions and being available over the network in that right now, you know? So that, that was my first experience with it was I brought in the JDBC template, just that. And then eventually I brought in the service container and then I brought in the web tier. And eventually over a few years, I was using all of it or at least a lot of it. Right. And even when I couldn't bring in the web tier, I was using it with struts. So 
I just started using it. And then eventually I started like really liking it. And I felt like I could do interesting things with it. And I started writing, contributing code back. And I started raising pull requests and well, not pull requests, patches, basically sending patches back then. And uh, I gave presentations. And, and then eventually they asked me if I wanted to do this job in 2009. I said, I'd love to. They interviewed me and they, they gave me everything except for the job. They said, it's yours, but it's not yours, right? We can't give it to you because we have a hiring freeze. So, yeah, exactly. So when we started interviewing, they could have hired me, but then the process went on and then there's a hiring freeze. That's happening um, right now with people because of the COVID. People are interviewing and then job freeze is coming and people cannot get. So scary. Yes. It's so scary out there. Yeah. I wouldn't want to risk it. So they eventually hired me, those fools. (laughs) And uh, here we are. I mean, that was 10 years ago, 2010, when I officially started. and. Now that I've been using this technology and I've been working with the people for 10 years officially and then many years before that, I feel just more lucky today because it does more now than it ever did before, right? It solves more problems for more people, which is rare, right? You can't say that about a lot of technologies. Yes, evolved tremendously since like even five years ago, not 10, even three years ago, probably. Yeah. Yes. So the Spring ecosystem gives developers so many tools that it's hard to know where to begin. And uh, there are main parts, Spring Framework, uh, Spring Boot, you name it. So what is Spring? What is dependency injection? Why do you use Spring Boot over Spring Framework? What's wrong with using just Spring Framework? Nothing. Spring Framework is, if you had asked somebody before 2013, we would have said, yeah, of course, start with Spring Framework, and then you can add these other things to the class path. And Spring Framework has this concept of configuration. So Spring can do things for you if you're willing to give it some idea about how the objects in your application are arranged, right? How they wire together. And so if you're willing to do that, then Spring can help you do things like declarative transaction demarcation, like creating HTTP endpoints or doing RPC endpoints or doing messaging or whatever, right? Like lots of different um, component models. The other benefit of that is if you're, willing to write code that works in this dependency injection model where you write code that accepts other types of beans, but you do so by interface wherever possible, or at least the lowest common denominator type, then you're also by definition writing testable code, right? Because if you tie your dependency to just javax.sql.data source, then I can mock out that data source for my test, right? So writing dependency injection friendly code is also writing testable code. And so we, we like to encourage people to write small dependency injection friendly code. And if you're willing to teach Spring how to do that dependency injection, how to arrange that one bean should have its dependency satisfied with another, then Spring can do some interesting things for you. But you still have to do that configuration. For Spring Framework, you have to do everything, right? So for your code and for anything else that you depend on, for example, a database client or a message queue client or whatever, you have to configure all this stuff. You have to arrange all that stuff. And that configuration is, you know, you could do it through Java classes. You could do it through XML. You could do it through, in theory, you could do it through a property file. People don't know that, but that's actually a a thing that's possible. I wouldn't do it, but you could, right? So Spring Framework lets you do anything you wanted. When you start with just regular Spring Framework core, you get just an application context, which can, in theory, hold objects for you. It can arrange objects. It can do basic dependency injection. But that's not the same as being production ready. And so the question then is, What can we do to make our applications more production worthy? And that's where Spring Boot comes in, right? Spring Boot was a 
an attempt to make it so that people could go from concept to customer as quickly as possible. We wanted to have that same productivity gain that you got from Ruby on Rails without sacrificing the flexibility with which people were accustomed having used Spring Framework before, you know? So Spring Boot is where I would start today. Why not Ruby on Rails then? Well, I mean, let's say, let's answer the question from 10 years ago, okay? Ruby on Rails, at the time, when Ruby on Rails came out, it was very good for the the five-minute demo. You might remember the Rails team talking about the five-minute demo, which is I can go to Rails, generate the scaffolding for a database active record thing. I could generate my web tier, and I could generate the view, the HTML page. And I would just dump out all the stuff onto your, on your file system and you can do Rails and run the application, right? And there you go. You've got a customer entity in Active Record. It has a first name, a last name, and, an, and a date for a birthday. And suddenly, as if by magic, you also had HTML pages, you had database code, all that stuff, right? Just by having this one entity. So it was all driven from that. But the problem is that all that code was kind of a one-way thing. It was very hard to change it. Or if you wanted to use a different web tier, that was different. That was difficult. If you wanted to use a different database tier, that was difficult, right? If you didn't want to have a web tier at all, if you wanted to have like a REST API instead, that was difficult, right? So all of these assumptions were baked in and it was very hard to unwind it, right? So for microservices, Rails is actually pretty heavy. It's not a really great fit for for building microservices APIs. It's gotten better. It's much better now. But still, if you're just trying to build an HTTP API, then you might use something like Sinatra, right? There's better ways to build HTTP APIs today than than Rails. So that's the thing is we want that if you're trying to build a web app babysitting a database, that's the use case they talked about, the web app babysitting a database, that's it. then Rails is obviously very good for that, right? But that's not what people are building always, right? Maybe more than 2005 when Rails became very popular, but here we are 15 years later. Now I'm not building a web app babysitting a database. I'm building a HTTP API and then I have a client that talks to that, you know, totally different use case. So Rails was obviously a big inspiration for the Java community, for the JVM community. It popularized this idea of convention over configuration. Well, Spring was all about configuration. You could configure anything you wanted. And we tried to make it as easy as possible, but still, you had to do the work. And so Spring Boot was an attempt to give us the ability to have configuration if we wanted it, but to provide smart conventional configuration out of the box for common cases, but not just web apps, right? For batch processing, for security, for database integration, for messaging, for no SQL, for everything, you know, for all the different use cases for which there are spring modules. We want to have auto configuration. And even for stuff that we didn't support directly, like the MyBetis or Java OQ or whatever, right? All these different technologies out in the ecosystem. So if you had to start today, I would choose Spring Boot, whereas in 2000. 12, before 2013, I would have said, start with Spring, obviously. Okay, so... That answers the question. Yes, that answers the question. So now I think about, like, cloud technologies. And so say I have my application, web application, build on Spring Framework or Spring Boot, and I want to move it into the cloud. So what do I do? Old one, legacy one, I don't know. Oh, well, so you want to talk about a legacy one? Yeah. First, okay, let's talk about that. So if you've got a Spring Boot application, that's a legacy one. Again, Spring Boot from the get-go, there's no such thing, like there's not really a legacy Spring Boot app anymore, right? There's mm-hmm. Spring Boot apps came in 2000, and, like basically most of the, the first version of Spring Boot was 2014, right? 
So yeah, and I remember I was thinking about using it in 2015, but I was working on a payment system and we were really picky about what frameworks to use. And we were like, oh, do we want to use this new thing, Spring Boot? Maybe we can. And we ended up configuring Spring Framework ourselves. Okay. Yeah. I mean, back then it was very unknown, but maybe today the choice would be a little different. Who knows? You know, I know that eBay and uh, Alipay use Spring Boot, so it can be trusted with payment. So the idea is that from a deployment perspective, Spring Boot supported traditional servlet-based containers. If you wanted to use it, it's always supported them as dot, you could create a dot .war archive, you know, mm-hmm. but the default was a dot .jar. The default, if you didn't do anything, if you just got a brand new Spring Boot project, you got a dot .jar and you could take that jar and then deploy, deploy it to any cloud platform. So uh, our friend James Ward would tell you to run it on something like Heroku or Google Cloud Run, both of which support dot .jars, right? Cloud Foundry, right? Cloud Foundry also supports dot .jars. So you just say CF push space minus P space, the name of the jar, and then just wait a few minutes and it's in the cloud. There is Spring Cloud GCP, right? Yeah, yeah, GCP, yeah. So we'll talk about Spring Cloud and stuff in, in a second, but oh, okay. for traditional applications, for traditional... Oh, I see, okay. Yeah, for just Spring, for just, I want to take my application and deploy it to the cloud, right? That works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you get and you get a jar. So if you, as long as you have a JDK, you can turn it into any container and then deploy it. Now, recently, we've made that story even better, right? So Spring Boot 2.3, I think, or is it 2.2? I might, whatever, the latest version of Spring Boot now supports Docker images, right? So now, instead of me having to build the Docker file by hand, which isn't that hard, but it's just one of those things where everybody does it a little bit differently. So we figured we could just build in a default out-of-the-box support for building Docker images. That support now is in Spring Boot 2.3, so you can say spring-boot colon build-image, and it'll create a Docker image, and uh, you can then deploy that to whatever container registry you want. You can also deploy that to any Kubernetes or, or Mesos or whatever, Cloud Foundry, whatever, in any container orchestrator. So the story for cloud deployment is pretty good. It was always good. It's much better now. Another option is you can use GraalVM, right? GraalVM, we have a project called Spring Spring GraalVM uh, or Spring Native, or we're not sure what to call it really because native is a, a keyword. It's a reserved keyword in Java. So it'd be very weird to have a package called native in the framework, but you can use it. It's not yet GA. It's not yet done, but it, the idea is that you can take a lot of a lot of Spring Boot applications, many different types of Spring Boot applications, turn them into native images, and then there you go. Now you have a small, tiny native image that runs very nicely in a you know Kubernetes environment or, or whatever, right? Great for for use. Yeah, we had two episodes ago. I think we had Alex Shalai from uh, Oracle talking about Graal VM native images in the cloud and how that bootstrap these application deployment, the startup time, the uh, memory footprint, how that small is everything. So we'll pretty much cover that. Good. Yeah. Phenomenal technology for certain use cases. So that's an option. Now that all assumes you're building, let's say you've got a monolithic dot jar. You've got a web app, a database, all in the same jar, right? Everything I just told you applies. But the question I think is kind of interesting is how do I build an application for the cloud, as opposed to just one that can run in the cloud, right? Yeah. And so at Tanzu is the organization that I work for. The Spring team is part of Tanzu. We're part of VMware, right? So at Tanzu, we talk about, you know, forklifting existing applications into the, like you're just treating it like a virtual machine, right? 
you take an existing application and you drop it into a container and you say, that's good. It's the same. Yeah. It's a monolith though, right? You have to do session state replication. You have to do all sorts of weird stuff that you wouldn't want to do in a cloud native application, right? So uh, our buddy James Ward worked at Heroku. And of course they created the, uh, the 12 factor manifesto, right? 12 factor manifesto is um, a list of key ideas, key concepts that applications need to adhere to in order to build services that run reliably in a stateless, ephemeral, scalable platform, right? Like a Kubernetes. And so these 12 factor manifesto, if you look at those, I, those key concepts, Spring Boot supports them all. We support externalizing configuration. We support stateless applications and so on. We support a lot of the things that this manifesto gives you. That's part one. That's in Spring Boot itself. But then we also have this whole huge category of modules called Spring Cloud. Now, Spring Cloud is not actually a cloud platform. It's a set of integrations that builds upon Spring Boot that makes it easier for you to build applications that run in the cloud, right? To support patterns that you're going to need when you build cloud native applications. So scalable, elastic, messaging centric, event driven, resilient services, right? It could have been called Spring Microservices, I think. It's even that wouldn't have worked because we also have support for functions as a service, right? Yeah. So Spring Cloud is what that is. So Spring Cloud is is it builds upon Spring Boot. It uses the auto configuration mechanism, and that auto configuration mechanism, by the way, for people who are who haven't used Spring Boot before, it gives you, it's a bunch of classes that run when the application starts up. We analyze the environment. We look for environment variables, queues, things like that. And we wire up things for you. Things like your message queue and your database and your service registry and so on. So I would definitely look at Spring Cloud today if uh, people are trying to figure out how to take an application to the cloud. There are patterns there that people use for things like circuit breakers, service registration and discovery, client-side load balance, centralized configuration, federated security and OAuth or JWT or you know JWT, same thing. Or uh, there's patterns there also for building reactive services, for doing heartbeat detection, for service registries, for doing client-side load balancing, for doing all sorts of stuff. And there's also there's integrations with different cloud platforms. So for example, Microsoft maintains the Spring Cloud Azure project, which provides integrations with all the interesting Azure infrastructure, right? Same thing for the, there's a Spring Cloud AWS, which we have people working on in the community. We have Spring Cloud GCP, which people from Google uh, work on. Actually, the latest latest episode, one of the latest episodes of my podcast, I, I just spoke with Elena Felder, who's on the Google Cloud SDK team, and she works on the reactive Spring Cloud. She works on this reactive Google Cloud spanner integration, right, for Spring Cloud and for Spring Data, I mean. So uh, there's that. And then there's a, what's the other one? Oh, Alibaba. Alibaba, Alibaba is a pretty big, huge e-commerce engine. And they're the largest e-commerce engine on the planet by number of products. And uh, I think probably the second largest in terms of revenue. But hey, maybe I'm wrong. I could be wrong. Maybe they're number one, you know. So they're they're going to be big one day. And uh, they, they also built a Spring Cloud for Alibaba. It's a lot of integrations, a lot of glue that makes it so that you can write Spring apps that work in the most natural way in these different Alibaba clouds, AWS, uh, Azure, and uh, GCP environments. Is it just a matter of a few clicks to set up the... So with Spring Boot, you can go to the Spring Initializer and just choose whatever you want, download the zip file, unpack it, and then start your development. 
is that as easy with Spring Cloud integrations as with this with the Spring Boot one? Yeah, so you go to start.spring.io and you can choose the Spring Cloud dependencies there. It's the same exact process as Spring Boot. It's the same place, same everything. It's just that those dependencies ship as part of a separate Maven bill of materials dependency, right? So we automatically add that for, to your build for you. And we make sure that the Spring Cloud dependencies work against the latest, greatest version of Spring Boot. So if you choose Spring Boot and you choose a version of Spring Cloud something, we don't, you know, you don't get conflicts or anything like that. They're, they're, it's, it's known to, to work against that version. So it's the same thing. There's obviously some configuration. There's properties you might want to specify to specify credentials or things like that. But basically, the bootstrap process is exactly the same. What about migration? Say I want to migrate from AWS to GCP or the other way around. I don't know why you would want to leave GCP. Uh, <laughs> such a nice platform. Uh, no, I, I don't. So in theory, if you're writing code with Spring's APIs, right, this is the theory, yeah. then you have the best opportunity to be able to write applications that are portable across these different platforms, right? So we have interfaces for common things like load balancing, for things like the environment where you can get configuration, right? So for example, I can use, or we have things for mess an abstraction for messaging. So if you want to use Azure Service Bus, you can, but you can also use Kafka. It's the same interface, right? The uh, Spring Cloud Stream Binder interface. If I want to get configuration, like keys and values, passwords, credentials. That's called the environment abstraction or the property source. And that gets plugged into the environment. And I can use that interface from the Spring Cloud config server. I can use it from Spring Cloud Vault or HashCorp Vault. I can use it from the Google Cloud, what is it called? Google Cloud Config or Vault or something like that. They have something as well, Key Vault, something like that, right? And then there's similar offerings for all the different cloud vendors. I use the same interface. So my Spring code doesn't know or care for things like that about the individual platform. So in theory, it would be as simple as take, swapping out the jars and changing the configuration. But that said, I don't want people to think that that's what we're trying to do because we also support where it makes sense, native APIs, all right? Mm -hmm. So we, we're not trying to suppress or hide or abstract away the brilliance of each of these platforms. If you're gonna invest on, on if you're gonna invest on, in Google Cloud or if you're gonna invest on, uh, Microsoft Azure, then these things are huge. They're massive. And we're not trying to shield you or protect you from the platform. We're trying to make it easier to use the platform, right? There's going to be some investment when it comes to moving from one platform to another. I think like if you're using Google Cloud Spanner, for example, Google Cloud Spanner is world changing technology, right? It's, there's no other thing like that exactly. Uh, or Azure Cosmos DB, same thing. If you're trying to do something that requires Azure Cosmos DB, you should absolutely use it. We have interfaces. We have Spring Data. You can use the reactive CRUD repository. And that same interface will let you talk to both Spanner and Cosmos DB. But again, if you've decided to use Spanner or Cosmos DB, then you have scale issues and availability requirements that are going to make it very hard for you to move to somewhere else. You know, you're not going to be able to take your reactive CRUD repository and move from Spanner to MySQL, right? It doesn't, it just doesn't happen. So. I, I don't think people should go into Spring thinking, oh, this will give me the ultimate edge to get away from these platforms. It might, if you really... It might, because as a startup uh, engineer, for example, I do not want to invest into one technology. I'm uh, exploring opportunities. Yeah. And for me to start with, I would choose Spring to be able to move 
awake from another technology once I grasp the idea that, aha, uh, Cosmos DB is something I really, really need, and I want to now double down on that and right. move to the native API. Yeah, so you can use Springs again. So we have these abstractions, uh, and I'm saying for a large majority of the use cases, there's probably an abstraction for data access, for security, for configuration, for you know node balancing. There's probably an abstraction that'll work for you, but we do sometimes have native integration. So a good example is the uh, Azure object storage. The object storage thing is kind of like S3, but it's a lot more, it's a lot more rich, you know, in Microsoft Azure. So we don't have a common abstraction there, right? And I don't know if we should, maybe we should, I don't know, but it, it feels like that's a, a, a very rich domain and it might be worth preserving that. So yeah, I don't want anybody to think you can just jump from one cloud to the other and it's free. Actually, one of the most expensive parts is the the deployment, right? Getting that wrong can be very expensive. So definitely, if you're going to run on Google, use Kubernetes. If you're going to run on Azure, use Kubernetes. If you're going to run on whatever, at the very least, use Kubernetes as your platform base, right? For Azure, actually, we have a thing called Azure Spring Cloud. It's not the same as Spring Cloud for Azure. <laughs> Azure Spring Cloud is a platform. Yeah, exactly. I know, it's confusing. Azure Spring Cloud is a platform. It's actually a cloud platform. It's not a set of libraries. So it's a, it's like Cloud Foundry or Heroku, mm -hmm. but it's it's built specifically for Spring Boot applications by the Spring team and by Microsoft. And so you can buy this platform just like any other service on Azure. And then now you can do AZ. There's an AZ um, command line and you can use the AZ command line, the Azure command line to then deploy your jars. You don't have to do Kubernetes deployment descriptors or Docker files or anything like that, right? And it'll give you configuration and kind of load balancing and, and all that stuff. So lots of options. But it's not for free. It's payable, of course. Yeah, right. All these platforms are not free, right? They're, you can, yeah. I'm sure there's yeah, a free yeah, tier, yeah. maybe. I don't know. Yeah, but free tier. Realistically, if you're using it. In, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I don't even know. If, I have no idea. I, I'm sure there must be some accommodation there for free tier. What Azure Spring Cloud does is behind the scenes, it creates AKS. So it creates an uh, Azure Kubernetes cluster. So I don't know how much that is, but it's awesome. I just, ah, it's so awesome. Like, I don't want to worry about Kubernetes. Life is too short for YAML files, you know? Yeah, exactly. So we started to talk about money. And I wonder about the model of monetization for Spring, because it's all seems to be free and 100% open source. So how do you, the company make money on that? Uh. Good question. If I knew the answer, um, no, I, I don't. So we have several things you can like, for example, if you buy Azure Spring Cloud, uh, then of course we benefit a little bit from that. Um, if you buy uh, a Cloud Foundry or, or PKS, VMware, Tanzu, we have cloud platforms like uh, Cloud Foundry and we have, um, we have a Kubernetes distribution called PKS, which you can get as well. So, you know, we have a very strong Kubernetes presence. Remember Joe Beta, and Craig McClecky, two of the people that founded Kubernetes, work on with Tanzu. They're part of Tanzu, right? So our Kubernetes distribution is pretty boss sauce. And so people seem to like that, and they buy it a lot. And it's great for the hybrid cloud strategies or the on-prem cloud, where a lot of our customers are giant banks. They're not trying to save money on data centers, right? These are giant banks that have plenty of money. It's not about that. They just want to increase their agility. So they want elasticity. They want dynamic uh, sort of iterative uh, development cycles. Uh, but they don't want to pay, you know, they don't want to have to, they don't want to get rid of the data center. That's not the issue. They're not trying to hand over the keys to the data centers to somebody else. They're just trying to make it so that the cycle time from having an idea to getting a server up and running to deploying into the 
into production is much less thanks to a, a cloud platform. So they choose uh, our Kubernetes. And, and we have a lot of people that do hybrid or entirely on public cloud as well using our Kubernetes. So we, you know, all of that helps feed into the Spring team. We know that enterprise people use Java by and large, right? Number two is .NET. And so we have, a, we have a pretty sizable footprint there as well. But the Java ecosystem is the JVM ecosystem, not just Java, JVM, right? The JVM ecosystem pretty much dominates the enterprise. So we're, we're happy if people are happy with Spring because that helps them hopefully find their way to our stuff as well, you know, to the uh, Tandu stuff. I spend all my time talking about Spring, but nobody tells me to talk about Tanzu or PKS or anything like that. So like I, nobody's ever asked me to sell anything or anything like that. So it's very, VMware has been amazingly generous. They've been very patient with me, particularly because I'm out there and I talk to large audiences and they never say, oh, would you please get in a mention of this? I try, of course. I'm very happy to talk about some of, some of the stuff I know about, but uh, I appreciate that they they understand that people don't want to be preached to or, or sold to. You know, you asked about it, right? I didn't. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it seems to me that you're marketing source project and I never thought about you marketing something that I uh, that needs to be bought by someone. So that whereas a lot of developer advocates would advertise their paid platforms. I mean, not because they're bad or anything, but just because that's how their companies make money. That's the reality of the world. So again, I, I'll, I've done talks on Azure Spring Cloud, right? Which is the nice thing about Azure Spring Cloud is that it's, at the end of the day, it's it can be Kubernetes if you want it to be. So you can take those some of that skills. It's also using the infrastructure in Azure. So you can use Spring Cloud for Azure. And if you want to talk to those things elsewhere. So really, Azure Spring Cloud is a combination of nice things. But a lot of those nice things in of themselves are just open source as well, right? It's the platform itself that costs money, right? So if you're using Azure, you're going to pay money. So I, I don't feel like that's controversial. It's not controversial to suggest that if you're going you're to use AWS or GCP or Azure or whatever, it's not free, right? These companies are awesome, but they're not in the business of giving away free platform uh, access to everybody. So, you know, yeah. we, we try and make it as easy as possible to, to, for people to use these things, understanding that there's going to be a cost there. But the Spring clients, the, the integrations from Spring, that's all open source, right? The Spring team yeah. builds that. Okay, you're also writing the book. Reactive Spring, right? Oh dear, yeah. Yeah, this is my my sixth book. And every time I've written a book, I've always said, I'm not going to write another one. This is insane. Why the heck have I done this? And uh, here we are, sixth book in. And I, it's not it's a stupid idea. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I keep thinking I'll get this right. And you know, I've actually become kind of obsessed with the process of of automating away the process of publishing a book. So some of the considerable pain that I've experienced in writing books is the workflow of writing the book, right? Because most book publishing experiences are not like software development experiences, right? You can't just ship it. You're like when I started writing books back in 2008, the workflow was, and I'm not kidding, I had a giant desktop Linux tower, right? That was on my on my floor. And it was a powerful machine. I had a pretty big 18-inch monitor or something like that, huge, right? And I was I would open up a Windows virtual machine, use Microsoft Word in that virtual machine, write the book there, email the book, or if I needed to, I could take it onto a Samba, you know, mount, SMB. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I could uh, take it from my Linux machine, put it on a Samba mount, get it from my Linux installation, then email it. It was just a nightmare, every single change. And then the editors would go through and 
there would be two different types of editors. There's copy editors and there's uh, grammar editors. And the, the editors go through and they, they send back a PDF. So it's not, it's not like an ASCII doctor file. It's not even the Word document. It's a PDF with the notes. And you're supposed to go through there and hold the two documents up side by side and go, okay, check, okay. And if you change the document on the left, while they're spending weeks editing the document on the right, now their notes don't line up anymore, right? Yeah. So just a night, absolute nightmare, right? No, 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 nothing like that. And then that process got worse and worse. And I, eventually, I wrote the last book I did was um, Cloud Native Java for O'Reilly, right? And that book was all about Spring Boot and Spring Cloud and Cloud Foundry and you know these patterns for building cloud native applications. And uh, that book, they had an ASCII Doctor pipeline at O'Reilly, which I think is quite admirable, right? But still, at the very end, when it came down to the last like several months of the process, you had to freeze your editing. There's a freeze, right? Mm -hmm. So you couldn't make changes to the Git document, to the Git code, because there's editors and they worried that it would would fall out of sync. They apparently had no ability to do a, a Git poll, right? Yeah, it was just so, it was so so close to perfect, you know, and it was as close as I've seen any of the major book publishers come, you know. So this time I said, okay, well, I'm going to self-publish. Let's see how that works. O'Reilly is one of the best publishers you can work with by far, right? I truly, truly am grateful for everything uh, they've done for me, obviously, but I, I did want to try it. So I wrote, I'm, I'm self-publishing this book. It's called Reactive Spring, and uh, I even open sourced the entire production pipeline. It's a set of Spring Boot auto configuration. So you add that Spring Boot auto configuration to your project, and configure the right things, and it'll produce an EPUB, a PDF, a screen PDF, a Mobi, a Kindle, all these kinds of things, and HTML. It'll create an HTML output version of it, right? So you just literally run the application, and it just does that for you. And it's open source. It's a book all about how to use reactive programming, right? And it's on reactivespring.io. It's not yet done, but I'm self-publishing through LeanPub. So all they control is the distribution and the collecting of the money, right? They they make sure that you get the right receipt and, and that you can buy the book and whatever. But um, everything else is my job. Editing, production of the book itself, writing, grammar check, thank you Grammarly, all this stuff, right? So it, it's been a very interesting experience, but now I feel very empowered because I have a pipeline that works now, right? I can actually make changes, commit the changes, and then see a PDF and a Kindle and all that stuff ready to download like 10 minutes later. So I get constant continuous feedback about how it looks, right? And that process has been super cool. So the book itself now is really coming along very quickly. I think I'll be done hopefully in the next few weeks. I've got... Yeah, next few weeks. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, for me especially, because I cannot wait to get to the next book. Now that I've got this tool chain and I've got a workflow that feels productive, I've already got ideas for the next book I can do. Next book? You said it was the last one. <laughs> yeah, well, that's because they're so painful. I keep hoping I'm going to get it to the point where it's like writing software. Software, you, if you do continuous delivery, LeanPub kind of gives you that, right? I mean, I love continuous delivery. I'm a, my friend, Matt Stein, he talks about he's a continuous delivery junkie, right? He needs continuous delivery. He needs, and I'm like that too. I, I understand exactly how he feels. I love, all of us are, right? All programmers, all engineers, all, all creative people are continuous delivery junkies. It's so valuable to be able to see the result of what we've done very quickly to validate whether we took the right decision here or there and to and then to be able to backtrack or proceed right and so being able to write a book and have that immediate feedback is so valuable and it's actually fun now to write a book instead of waiting weeks for somebody else to get back to me or you know if 
if the editor takes a vacation, then I'm just sitting there waiting. I don't know. You know, I, I might start writing the next chapter. And then the editor takes a vacation on the last chapter, comes back a month later and says, here's all the changes. I've lost my train of thought. I've lost my context associated with that, that chapter, right? So you, you have to spend a lot of time cycling back into focus, spinning up your brain to remember what you were doing. So uh, now that mostly goes away. I can focus on it and get the feedback lo- uh, loop closed, you know? So this publication process, it gives me that, right? Uh, LeanPub allows you to deliver unfinished books. People can buy it. They can read it. They get the final edition as well. When the final book comes out, they get the final thing So for no extra cost, right? So it's super valuable. I've gotten so much feedback from the community, right? So many people have said, oh, I found a typo here, or could you explain this a little clearer or whatever? You know, it's just oh, so good. So good. I bought your book, by the way. Thank you. I hope you get the final edition very soon. I want this to be over with soon, you know? So let us talk a little bit about reactive programming, what that is. Yeah. Well, uh, reactive programming is a old solution. It's not new, right? It's not particularly new. It's an old solution to an older problem, which is I want to have a way to describe the data flow between cooperating actors in a system. And those things might be distributed. Those actors might be distributed. Those actors in my system might be distributed. That's the first part. And the other one is I want to make better use of the resources that I've got in my system. So these two things are super important, especially in the context of microservices. So while reactive programming is not new, right? It's at least 10 years old, I think 12 years old. It came out of the Arch extensions for .NET, right? The, uh, a lot of that work was being done there to sort of discover what the best way to do data flow when it comes to lots and lots of events, right, is. That work then turned into, then inspired rather, uh, folks at Netflix who created RxJava and and inspired a lot of other organizations, including a company at the time called TypeSafe, now called Lightbend, and inspired the Spring Team. So back in, in 2011, we created a project called Reactor. So a lot of these different organizations around the same time started creating, and Vertex, actually, that was called Node.x back then later renamed Vert.x. So all of us started creating these reactive-ish frameworks, these frameworks that were designed to allow us to provide a programming model so that whenever the computer needed to do some processing on the thread, it knew when something was not using the thread, right? And it, the benefit of that is that now the processor could then move things off the thread while they're waiting for something like IO and then put other things on the thread. That gives it That's the event loop model, right? The Node.js event loop model. The difference is, of course, that in Java and the JVM, we have more than one thread, right? So if you have four cores, you can have four event loops in the same JVM. We don't have to boot up a separate process for each one. So that was really interesting, that ability to make better use of threads, to make better use of the memory that we've got and so on, to keep your CPU 100% utilized as opposed to idle, right? Because if you look at a lot of traditional services, built with Spring and, and built with lots of other technologies, right? If you look at those applications, you log into the computer, log into the server, look at top, you'll see that it's not doing anything. And yet, for some reason, the service isn't taking new requests, right? It's not taking new requests because there's no available threads. They're all in a wait state. They're all idle, waiting for something to happen, right? And this is really unfortunate because it means that we're not really fully utilizing our CPUs. We paid good money for that instance on on on. AWS or Azure or GCP, it would be a very it would be a, a shame to waste it, right? So reactive programming gives you uh, one way to solve both of those problems, right? And I, I think that's a very very valuable way to uh, approach 
building systems because it also it's it's a bit more functional. It's not nearly so functional as I'm sure some people would like, but it's definitely more functional than the traditional approach that people take when they build these kinds of services. And because it's functional, it it helps people write code that is easier to reason about, right? You have less side effects. It's also easier to test in isolation because if it's a function, you can just change the input and expect the output to, to vary accordingly, right? So there's the original, there's the core benefits, but there's a lot of benefits that come as a result of it, as a sort of accidental benefit of embracing reactive programming. Now, in a concrete way, uh, reactive programming is a inversion of the way that we normally think about handling processing in a service, right? Uh, we talk about traditional synchronous or blocking APIs, right? This idea that I have an API that is going to wait for something to happen, right? And that thing that's happening could be algorithmic, it could be you know the Fibonacci series or cryptography or whatever, or it could be input and output. And input and output in particular is with with algorithms. There's sometimes there's no way to avoid waiting. You just have to wait. That's the nature of the algorithm. Cryptography, right? There's no way to like do something asynchronous. It just has to be done on the CPU somewhere at some point, right? So that cost is just there. But I/O, there are alternatives to waiting for I/O. You don't have to use Java I/O input stream and output stream. You can use Java NIO, and you can use libraries that build on top of that, like Netty and Etty, right? So these libraries give us the ability to say, here's a file descriptor. It represents a, a stream of bytes. When these bytes are available, I want a callback. I want a, an interrupt, right? But when they're, while I'm waiting for them, I'll go do something else. I'm not going to block. I'm not going to sit here and block the thread on which I'm running to get those bytes. And so if you understand that's what's happening at the lowest level is using this asynchronous approach to input and output, then you understand that we have to change everything on top of that. So we can't just say, here's a collection of data because a collection, it's either all there or it's not, right? All the data is in the collection or it's not there, right? So we need some way of saying, here's a thing that will be data eventually, but it's not right now. It's like a promise, you could say, or a future. But even there, we have a problem. Futures only handle one record, right? They give us a thing that we can hold on to to give us one value. So the question is, what if I want to get 10 values or a million values or an unlimited number of values asynchronously, like in the future, not right now, at some point in the future, right? What's the equivalent of that? Completable future doesn't work for that, right? I need uh, something that'll give me the first 10 values that are available and then the next 10 and whatever. So that's where the reactive stream types come in. So reactive stream types give you this foundation. And on top of that, we have implementations like Reactor and like Vertex and like Aka and Aka Streams and like um, RxJava too. And on top of that, you have Spring. And Spring has, we support those types at all the different layers of the framework wherever possible. So in the web tier, in the RSocket tier, in the messaging tier, in the security tier, in the Spring Cloud microservices tier, in the integration tier, et cetera. And uh, if that sounds like a lot, then that's true. You should read the book. It sounds like you already are. But... Yeah, that's a lot. And I'm thinking about Reactor and Spring Web Flux, Flux, and I don't know what the difference between them and what their uh, main goal is. What do you try to achieve when you use Spring Web Flux or Reactor? The Reactor is just the specializations. Put another one. Okay, you can use... Reactor without Spring, mm-hmm. right? Reactor doesn't need Spring. Yeah. Spring needs Reactor. If so, Reactor is just like RxJava. It's just like Aka Streams. It just provides a way to describe data flow. If that data flow is over HTTP or RSocket or to a database, that's separate. Those drivers have to be implemented, and the types that 
they give you are reactive types. The reactive stream specification gives you something called org.reactivestreams.publisher, and publisher takes a generic parameter T, and publisher is kind of like that. It's kind of like a completable future, except instead of just one value, it gives you zero, one, two, five, you know, whatever, unlimited. So we have two specializations of publisher. One is called mono. Mono gives you zero or one record, right? It's like a completable future, but it has, it's reactive and it supports back pressure. And we'll talk about that in a second. And then there's flux, which is a reactive streams type that gives you zero or one or two or five or a trillion or unlimited, right? And that's more like a Java 8 stream, but again, it supports back pressure. So these two types are from Project Reactor. They're concrete implementations of org reactive streams publisher. And they're just, they're useful because they have lots of operators, things you can use to do filter, map, flat map, et cetera. And um, you can use them for composition, right? You can do all sorts of interesting patterns thanks to these operators on these two concrete types. We then support at a layer above that in Spring WebFlex, building HTTP endpoints with reactor types, right? Or with reactive streams types. You don't actually have to use reactor types for, you know, you can return publisher if you want. But behind the scenes, we're using reactor and we're very happy if you use it, use it as well, right? We can, because they are just reactive types, reactive streams types. So from Spring WebFlex, you can build an HTTP controller that returns headers and cookies and a payload and a view and a, or an HTTP, you know, REST API, whatever, in a reactive way using these reactor types. Does that make sense? No, I still can't figure it. If I build a Spring application and use Reactor, is that the same as if I build Spring Webflux application? No. So Spring Webflux is for HTTP. Okay. You can't build. Reactor doesn't have an HTTP module. I mean, it does, but that's separate. It's not what we're talking about. Okay, I see. So the Reactor types are like core types. It's like a Java collection. You know how you can use Java collections in the web, in databases, and so on? You can use Reactor's Flux and Mono and all these different things, but that doesn't mean it's the same as building an HTTP endpoint. So WebFlux is for web stuff, you know, HTTP, WebSockets, that kind of stuff. We have RSocket. RSocket is a binary protocol that was developed originally by people at Netflix who then went to Facebook. It's a message exchange. It supports all the different common message exchange patterns. So it, it can do request response, it can do request stream, it can do stream in, stream out, we call those channel interactions. It can do fire and forget, so I can send a value and then get nothing back, right? Uh, and it supports back pressure on the wire as well, and we'll talk about it in a second. And then uh, it also supports bi-directional communication. So when one socket node connects to the other, there's no such thing as client or service. They're truly, they're bi-directional. So either side can ask either side a question at any point. That's the other thing that's important is that they connect once. With HTTP, you connect over and over and over. You have to make, you want to make another request, you connect to the handshake, then you send the body, right? You get the response and you disconnect. With RSocket, you stay connected from the very beginning of the application and for the life of the application. Each RSocket connection is multiplexed, so I can have more than one transaction going on at the same time, obviously. And it's all reactive. So it understands back pressure. It understands how to stream values, basically. So RSocket is another way to build services. It's far more flexible than HTTP. It's a binary protocol, so it doesn't require just Google protocol bus like gRPC. It also supports things like headers. So in that way, it's an improvement over WebSockets. It's just a very interesting protocol, and we support it natively in Spring. And you can build controllers using RSocket. You can build RSocket controllers and build RSocket clients like that as well. And RSocket is the first project that we donated to the Reactive Foundation. So 
the Spring Team, Lightbend, Alibaba, and um, others created the Reactive Foundation, right? I forget. Oh, Facebook. Facebook's there as well, right? So we all created the uh, the Reactive Foundation, and we are, our socket is the first thing that was put there, right, as a common effort. I want to add here that there will be online Reactive Summit on November 11th. Mm-hmm. Uh, so everyone is welcome to participate in that. And I think CVP unfortunately is, oh, really? And I think the CVP unfortunately is closed by now. Uh, but anyway, there are gonna be a lot of awesome talks there, and I'm help. And mine. Yep. Are you speaking? I was gonna say I think I'm speaking. I, I got an email. I I think I responded. Somebody asked me if I wanted to join. I said said yes, but I don't see the schedule there. I'm pretty sure I'm speaking. Just hopefully I'll see you there. Like there's no, I get, I know this is going to sound ridiculous. I get, I speak at enough events that I'm not ever really quite sure mm-hmm. where, but I'm pretty sure I'm going to be at this one because I got a, a personal email about this one. So I'm, I'm excited, but that's a great one. Even if I'm not there, it's, it's going to be great. And you're, I opened your blog post about the new talk, the AirSocket revolution. Oh, yeah. Where you're talking the basics of AirSocket and uh, fundamentals with AirSocket controllers and in Spring framework. I think everyone who's curious about AirSocket and its features should check it out. It's pretty new. Yeah, uh, thank you. I hope they do. It's pretty nifty. And and. Again, it's one of those things where you don't need Spring to use our socket, but it sure is nice. It's really the ecosystem right now is so exciting, right? This idea that I can build reactive things, you know, this idea that there's this huge ecosystem where I can integrate. You, and you said you do a lot of Scala, right? Obviously, yeah. the the reactive the reactive reactive APIs are a wonderful opportunity for our two ecosystems to play together, right? Because there's so much great stuff in the Scala ecosystem. Yeah. And uh, I just love that. As long as that Scala stuff speaks reactive, then suddenly we can share. We can play. We can share each other's toys, you know? So I, I did a video a few years ago using Spring WebFlex and Aka Streams, for example. And I just thought, that's a really nice combination. I can use Aka Streams. I can delegate to an actor system, do some computation on the cluster, and then have that result sent back as a, as a streaming result from my HTTP controller, you know? My reactivation controller and just streams nicely. Very, very, very cool opportunity for all of us. Yeah, you mentioned back pressure several times. Yes, thank you. Very simple idea. It's just the idea that the client controls the rate of consumption. Super simple, right? Like if you have a message queue, you know, I'm sure we've all done this before where we add like Kafka or RabbitMQ or whatever. The reason we do that is for two things. One, we want to guarantee that there's a, some persistence of the messages so that if one side or the other should die, then the state isn't lost, right? So somebody orders a product from our service. We don't want to lose the order, so we send it to a message queue, and that way it's guaranteed to be durable. But the other reason we do that, and to me the more important reason, because we could just use a database for the state, right? The other more important reason we do that is because we want to guarantee that the other side that's consuming the data can consume it at its own pace and not faster, right? So the consumer, you don't want to overwhelm the consumer. You don't want a denial of service to the consumer. So you want to make sure that the consumer starts draining the data from the, the queue as fast as it can and no faster. Well, that's what, that's what back pressure is, right? It's flow control. It's the idea that the consumer, not the producer, controls the speed at which the consumer does the work that it's going to do. And huge 
huge benefits to that, right? Uh, you get more stable systems. You get software that uh, is predictable under load. You get you also get the ability to have really intelligent load balancing now, right? Because you can see truly how much load you've got as opposed to how much load has been taken in, into memory, but which isn't being processed fast enough. So that in a concrete fashion, what that means is if I am a reactive subscriber, I can then subscribe to a stream of data. I can ask for the next 10 records. I can process those 10 records if I want. I will be given no more than 10 records. And if there's more data in the process, I, as the consumer, can ask for those next 10 records. Very adaptable. Yeah. So reactive programming gives you a lot of benefits without a doubt, but we kind of have to pick one small problem. And in my opinion, sure. it's debugging. Yeah, that's a common thing. So the debugging story, I'll give you two sides to this. One, I think I have a bit of a bias here. And so let me disclose that up front. I work on the reactor stuff. I use reactor. So like in theory, in the abstract, debugging asynchronous code is not great. Nobody wants to do that. But I've only ever had to do reactive with reactor. And the reactor team has been doing all sorts of things to make debugging easy. So I've never really found it to be that big a deal. First of all, you can put your breakpoint in any of the functional handlers, right? You can put a breakpoint in any of the map or flat map operators. So that's not a big deal. That, that hasn't changed. It's not, like, it's not like debuggers look at reactive code and go, I refuse to look at it. It's not possible. The second thing is there are tools you can use in reactor to generate what are called assembly traces. So instead of just a stack trace, which is bound to a particular thread, you can have an assembly trace, which shows you the whole graph, the whole reactive graph of the data. So that's part one. You can do that for, you can actually do that at compile time. So that way it's actually very efficient, right? As opposed to something that requires a lot of extra stack frames to be allocated and calculated. And we also have things like Blockhound. That's a Java agent that you can use to, you just add it to the class path. And then if you do anything in these reactive thread pools that is not reactive, it's blocking, right? If you do something blocking in these thread pools, it'll throw an exception. So it'll, it'll make sure that you don't introduce a memory leak, right? So there's also on operator debug. There's also, which uh, sets up debug operations. And there's also dot log, which you can use to output information at a certain point in the pipeline. So all of these things come for free if you're using Reactor. And so I I don't really understand the whole, I think people, when they say debugging is hard with functional and reactive stuff, that's probably true. It, I, it never has been for me, but only because maybe I, I, I've been using Reactor, which we built Reactor and got that right a long time ago. The effort ever since then has been making it so that debugging and integration into production is easy, right? So. I don't know. It could be easier, I suppose. Is it as easy as what we had before with non-functional code? I don't know. I mean, so you're doing functional, right? Once you've gone functional, yeah. once you've gone functional, do you find debugging it harder? No, it's easier, actually. Yeah, same, right? The same thing here. It's functional APIs. It's functional code. It's just data flow. So like, I think once you've, I think the move to reactive is hard. Yes. Like, just like moving to functional is hard, right? How I think about my debugging, right? When I come from, oh, not necessarily imperative, but the easiest way to debug is to add print-to-land statement. Which is so cool. Yeah, that's what yeah. log is. Yes, with asynchronous programming, that's a little bit tricky because your print statements pop up at some like point that 
is not necessarily shows you the current state right. of the of your process of your program. So you need something like structural logs or things like that, so that you would understand what which thread exactly wrote that at which point and how the rest of your application look at that point. That's what that log does for us exactly. Yeah, I completely agree. The other thing that may be interesting is I was never a very big debugger. Like I never used the debugger that much even before I went into Reactive. So for me, it hasn't been a different skill set. It hasn't. You can use the debugger. I don't get people who say that you can't. You just put breakpoints at every step, and there you go. But like that said, if the way you think about debugging is to log stuff out, then that's going to be even easier. You know, your life will be great. One thing I'm thinking about right now is, is there a static analysis tool which would show you that, oh my God, this is reactive application, but you accidentally put this blocking operation or blocking some block on your thread and it's not going to work as good, like performance will slow down dramatically? Uh, no, not that I know of. There's, there is the block hand, but that relies on runtime, right? Like you have to run the code and actually trigger it. Yeah. But at least you have it. Let's you and I be super clear because I don't want people to think it's just a slowdown. If you use like the default scheduler for Reactor, it has one thread per core. So if you have four cores, that means you've got four threads. So if you when you say slowdown, we're not talking about a slowdown of like a little bit here. We're saying if you block one thread and you've only got four, you're stopping 25% of all your users. Dramatically slow. Very huge. Yeah, exactly. Do not do this, right? You've got to absolutely make sure you never ever block the thread. Or if you're going to block a thread, put it on a separate blocking thread pool, right? An elastic thread pool. Now that's going to limit the scalability of your system now because now you have one thread per request, which is not reactive, right? But at least you're not blocking the main reactive thread pool, which is super important. Yeah, like, don't do that. I've, that's the biggest. <laughs> if you want to have a, a bad day in production, try figuring out what that is, you know? Block count change. We used block count on code that was reactive. Like we found blocking code in systems that are supposed to be non-blocking, right? So it happens to the best of us, you know, it happens to people who know what they're doing. They can still accidentally introduce it. Yeah, so that's why I thought if there is something which is static, we can figure out. But of course, because you use dependencies for other libraries, that libraries can be blocking inside. And, you know, of course, it's hard. It would be cool, though. I agree. That would be super cool. Uh, I just, and maybe it exists. I don't know. There's so many people working on Reactive. I can only speak about the little, tiny little corner of the world that I know about. I'm not aware of anything. I, I'm a very, I love this. Right now, I, I, I'm i in constant contact with uh, folks from different organizations, from Alibaba, from Lightbend, from others that are doing such amazing things with, with Reactive. And it's brought all these people that I can't imagine before, like Microsoft, you know, and, and, uh, and Facebook and all these companies that don't have a lot in common, you know, are now working together on things like reactive on reactive APIs and reactive solutions and systems and so on. So it's, it's really nice. I, this is the, this, this kind of community is exactly what I wanted when I started using spring 18 years ago, because it pulled together all these different things from the spring ecosystem right from the Java ecosystem. Right. So GBC or hibernate or JDO or struts or, you know, whatever. Right. And now I feel the same thing again by using spring. I'm getting, a, I'm able to participate in this, beautiful ecosystem of people that are smarter than I am. I love that. All right. It seems we covered all the topics that I wanted to talk about. All right. 
Thank you for coming. I appreciate you having me today. Thank you very much for this. And thank you for listening, our listeners. 